unwavering when we say Black Lives Matter. Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How you doing, VJ? Thank you, thank you. Doing pretty well, doing pretty well. So calling in on the phone, we have, uh, we're in conversation with Ken Furlick. Um, Ken is a, a former energy physicist and he uh, runs the website, uh, ryuc.info for releasing your unlimited creativity. Welcome, Ken. Hi. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Good. Good. So why don't we start the conversation off a little bit with, uh, about today's, uh, Halloween and, Today's a day in which uh, we wear masks uh, uh, and we kind of acquaint ourselves with the different uh, shadow parts, both of ourselves and the shadow parts of our, um, you know, collective. Um, and what are your thoughts on the shadow and integrating in the shadow for wholeness? This is a very Jungian perspective, Jungian perspective. And as some of, some of us people know, I'm working with the Jungian library. So we are starting to understand Jungian perspectives as well. And I know this kind of falls in line a little bit with what you're um, philosophical systems, uh, and we can kind of clarify that um, about the shadow and, and integrating in the. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, you know, my work's about creativity. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. When it comes to a shadow, <clears throat> I'm not really sure what people mean by that because when I work in creativity, I work with whatever the person is dealing with. <clears throat> and if there's aspects of their being that they don't like to face, um, I would create some ritual. There's an exercise called not doing, which you go and do something you would never do, um, to expand past the limiting beliefs that are controlling the mind. So when it comes to the shadow, since I'm, I don't deal with, quote, psychology per se, I'm not familiar with exactly how they want to define the shadow, because to me, it's all within the individual, and everything there needs to be faced in some way. There's just stuff that you don't want to present publicly to somebody. <clears throat> and if that's what the shadow is, well, it's only because nobody's given them the safe space to fully express themselves and get in touch with their authentic self and who they really are and what they're really feeling. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but uh, that's kind of my perspective on that. Yeah, totally. And about the masks and the personas that we wear in society, you know, kind of we have to feel like we have to present ourselves in certain ways or, or postulate for you know, pleasing others or trying to think and how that the kind of the, the creation of these personas is in, in, um, in dialogue with, um, kind of things that we, we present ourselves or put our best foot forward or, or kind of put our, put our, uh, game face on, they say, those kind of thing, like the ways in which we present ourselves in society and ways in which we create these different personas inside of ourselves is something well, that I'm I kind think, of touching in on. Yeah. I think one of the biggest problems that I've seen is people don't have individuals they can trust or a place where they can go and express the stuff that's inside themselves to get in touch with themselves. Um, you know, if, if I were to say, well, well, you can come to my office and sit on the couch and talk to me about it, the body's about experience. So, you know, the question is, how do you engage the body and the whole being 
in whatever the issue is. So that's why I say there aren't people who you can necessarily go to um, that they will accompany you and go to a place to make it safe for you to express what you need to do. And, um, you know, I, I see the world living in separation, not in terms of this country versus that country or uh, where I see the separation is is the person is not allowed to fully express and find a way to express what's inside themselves in a safe way and have those in their life that are willing to sit there and hold the space for them for a person to um, fully get in touch with their authentic self. That's why I find rituals are very important, creative play, um, I don't know if you ever heard of sand therapy, but mm. you basically get a bunch of toys. You say, okay, play out your drama with the toys. And I've done that in workshops, and they're very powerful. And it's really a matter about a person fully getting in touch with what's inside themselves and what it is needs to come out and be expressed. Great. Now, I, mean, I want to connect it a little bit to VJ was talking kind of Halloween and, and masks and all that sort of thing. Uh, you speak of the authentic self. Is there a possibility to try on other selves? Uh, you know, the idea during Halloween, you can kind of put on a mask. You can oh, maybe try that out. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point about creative play. Right. You know, I got a whole, I had a whole wardrobe of different shirts and I wouldn't call them costumes. But I would wear different things. I used to do interviews with Darth Vader. <laughs> I used to do interviews with God. And I had a mask for each of them. And um, it, it was quite enlightening and revealing what would come up when all of a sudden you're sitting by this character who's playing God or playing the dark side, and you start having a conversation. You know, it's like you ask the question, well, Darth Vader, uh, doesn't it bother you about... Um, working for the dark side, and he'll say, dark side? We're protecting the empire. How is that dark? Mm, We're yeah. trying to prevent it from all of these people going willy-nilly doing whatever they want. You know, and from his perspective, or from that perspective, he's 100% in alignment with his truth. Mm. So, I mean, it's quite interesting to put a mask on and then play the role and get a feel for it. Unfortunately, you may find you like it, and you don't want to take it off, so you change your life because you want to wear a new mask. Mm. Yeah. It really touches on the radical acceptance aspect of, like, this is something I've been exposed to through um, my master's program at Naropa University. You know, going into radical acceptance, going into, like, understanding that uh, the world is fundamentally perfect as it is, and that we're not trying to change or heal it, but rather we're trying to accept it and get to a deeper place of understanding of its mechanisms, which is what I'm hearing what you're saying right now, the truth of the the nature, the inherently perfect nature of um, things. And we just we just have a, a limited sight of what we can well, see and perceive, you know, I think. I don't want to interrupt, but let me interject. Yeah. Um, my background was an energy physicist, and it is. I, you know, I can't deny it, that's what I was. And as a physicist, Everything I studied, I never saw. I used instruments, or I had ways of detecting it, such that there's this whole unseen world that we could access if we knew how to properly focus ourselves or use the right equipment. And what I found is people will talk about we're interconnected, there's oneness, and the answer is, well, can you live from that perspective? 
the fact you don't see it with your eyes doesn't mean it's not real. So if you're living in oneness and you're interconnected, and all of a sudden somebody appears in your life, to me the question you have to ask is, oh, and what part of my consciousness is pulling forth this individual for the experiences they're revealing to me about myself? Mm. It's a different way to live in the world. You know, we can either say I'm a victim and this person is perpetrating something on me, or I can sit back and say, oh, if it's all interconnected, why is this individual coming into my life? Yeah, yeah. So That's why I love the Hawaiian Honopono, because mm. um, I did, my, my actually some of my understanding did have a breakthrough through the Hawaiian tradition, but in Honopono, it's like, you know, thank you for the experience, I love you, um, uh, hold on, let me go back. Let's see here. Um, there's four things, and my mind slips them all the time. But the idea is to accept that the person in front of you, you have created them mutually in some ways. It's, it's sort of, um, I love you, thank you for the experience. Um, God, I can't believe it. Please forgive me. Please forgive me, I think. And uh, I love Pardon you a lot myself. Please forgive me. Yeah, forgive me, yeah. Because it's it's accepting that whatever I'm experiencing, I have a either a, an agreement or just consciously chose to have it. I forgot why. So why am I going to beat the heck out of the person when in reality they're just fulfilling something that I asked for inside of me? To me, that's the oneness. That's the interconnectedness. We incarnate for a reason, and these characters show up in our life to give us these experiences which we incarnated to have. Now, which is interesting, and this is a big premise of my understanding, you incarnate into life to have experiences. So when you have those experiences in alignment with why you incarnated, you will have life and feel life and feel a satisfaction about life because you're getting what you came here to get. Mm. Yeah. So no, no. You can use an internal right. compass and say, hey, Am I feeling an inner satisfaction with what's unfolding in my life? And if the answer is yes, you're probably on track with what you incarnated to do. Mm. Now, that's an issue there. Well, some people don't believe they incarnated. I mean, some people believe that they created when the egg formed in the womb, and somewhere along the line, consciousness pops up, mm. and they become a being then. You know, my understanding is, is there's a part of ourselves that, will always be and will always exist mm. and we just come down here to have experiences and what gives us life tells us what we came to experience mm. and just for the audience uh I, I had to double check this myself Honopono is the hawaiian spiritual tradition that involves um accepting total responsibility for everything that surrounds us it has confession repentance and reconciliation so i'm sorry Please forgive me. Thank you for the experience. I love you and myself. Right, um, the being the four. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, confession and forgiveness. You know, in some ways, you know, I, I have a little problem with forgiveness. In sort of, please forgive me, or I forgive you. To me, there's an ego trip there. Mm. In the sense that, well, you know. I forgive you for giving me the experience that I asked to have. Mm. The, the idea of total acceptance of, of pulling into your life 
the experiences you've decide chose to have at some level of your being, all of these old concepts start to go out the door. Yeah. And you got to rethink and say, okay, who is this person in front of me? Why are they causing all of this to arise in me? And the answer is, you didn't know you had it in you, did you? Hmm. Until they caused it to arise. Yeah, and one one teaching has to do with uh, accepting, like offering the victory and accepting the defeat. So this is kind of like part of that, I think, is that you're kind of like giving up control, giving up kind of this need to be like, I'm right and you're wrong, but rather you're like saying, we're all kind of accepting my total responsibility, but also saying that, you know, we've created the situation in which there's a need for being right and wrong, and we're like trying to release that need, you know? You know the one I really love, yeah. BJ? Yeah. Sit there and you say, that person's evil. Mm. You say, how do you know they're evil? Well, I, I know they're evil. Well, as a young child, looking at somebody, they wouldn't say they're evil. Somebody says, that person's evil. Oh, that's what evil looks like. Okay, now that I know. To identify somebody as evil, you have that evil inside of you. Mm. Otherwise, you couldn't recognize it. Mm. Yeah. I, what, what, what if you are, though, however, in a situation of a, of a perceived threat? Uh, there is a situation, maybe somebody's armed, maybe somebody, uh, you're in a, somewhat of an abusive situation. Do you engage with that, or, or do you have some sort of sensation that's tingling that tells you i need to get out of this situation and not engage or not connect with uh, that particular moment my comment is if you follow your intuition you'll know what to do yeah and the where problem I, is <laughs> it, it, living responsibly is a way of life you rely on your intuition you pay attention to your body wisdom you become aware of the mind body connection and then when you're faced with this situation um, where you're being threatened, the question is, do I run? Do I fight? Or do I respond from a place of compassion that that person is so wounded that they're threatening me for whatever reason? And do I, how do I respond? Now, you say, well, am I willing to risk my life to have this person beat me up or kill me? I don't know what a life path looks like. I don't know what a person's destiny looks like. And it may be the choice where the universe says, okay, are you willing to view this person in compassion and risk how they're going to respond? And you may find when you say, okay, fine, do what you want to do, you may disarm them. And all of a sudden they'll break down and start crying because nobody ever gave them compassion. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, each situation demands a different response, but also I think that um, accepting that self-love, self-care, self-respect is important in that in that paradigm. Right. That is more about like not internalizing, I believe, not internalizing the the violence that is perpetuated in society. That we want to kind of understand that we're from a place of wholeness and completion. Of we're coming from a place of uh, wholeness and completion, rather than coming from a place of brokenness and. Okay, let, yeah. let me let me give you let me throw something out to you. Yeah. Have you ever heard of David Chetlahay? <laughs> no. David Chetlahay was a Native American uh, and was one of the code talkers, but he was sent to Europe. And Carolyn Mace tells the story, and if you if you uh, call up um, David Chetlahay, I can't get you the right spelling. You could read a story. But he was in this prisoner war camp, and he ended up 
in a prison of war camp versus going to the gas chambers by a fluke. And they nailed his feet to the floor, and this one guard would feed him maggots. And he was really angry and bitter. And after the war, he came out, and he was in a, uh, a VA hospital for an extended period of time because he couldn't walk well. And he went back to his Native American tribe. And they said, okay, tell us your story. And he told her the story. And he, they said, you can tell it three times and then get over it. But what they did was they threw him in a lake and said, David, call back your spirit. And while he was there in the lake struggling, he had this vision of this guard shoving the maggots down his throat. And it's like, why did you do that? And the guard said, that was the only food I could find to keep you alive. And in that moment, he healed himself, and um, he went on to become, you know, work with people. But when you read these stories, and you say, okay, how does the world work that, Somebody who you think is perpetrating something evil on you is actually, in some ways, helping you. Mm. I mean, it completely turns our perception of the world upside down. And I had such an experience where, in a flash, I realized the wor world didn't work the way I thought it did. So I started to look and say, well, how does this world really work? Mm. And as I, I stood back and I said, is there one way to view this world that whatever a person experiences, they're speaking their truth because it's true for them. And there is such a way, and it's we're creators, and we create our experiences, and we create them by how we think and we believe. Mm -hmm. But we got so much junk in our subconscious and programming and how we think the world works that we never pay attention to what's really happening. At least that's my experience. I think one of the premises of that is also the idea of how our powers and you know, kind of like these higher selves and, and perhaps these higher consciousnesses or higher consciousness, um, perhaps that, uh, are kind of, you know, that are, are kind of draw, we're kind of channeling and, and all of us are kind of moving through that energy. I don't know what you believe about higher powers, but I know there's a higher self or higher conscious kind of directing okay, let me, things. Let maybe. me go back to being a physicist. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, there is something called localized energy and non-localized energy. You have a, 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 an energy, when it localizes, it forms a particle. Now, if you look at a wave, and you look at the peak of the wave and the trough, you know, each of the peaks are independent, but the wave itself goes down and completely blends into the ocean or the body of water. Okay? The way I see it and explain it is, is your energy has localized in your body. So you see yourself as this peak of the wave, looking at all the other waves as individuals, but yet the essence of your being goes down into the wholeness as an integrated with it. So the way I like to explain it, if you've ever seen the old diving movies where a guy goes down in this big diving chamber with a tube attached, and he's kind of walking down there with these big boots to hold him on the floor of the ocean, and he's got this tube that goes up to the boat. The way I like to look at it is the essence of your being, your higher self, which some people say is God, which is the part of you that created your life, and this is where I think Christ said, I and the Father are one. I think he was really referring to his higher self. We've created this life. 
And I'm down here, connected to my higher self, exploring and having an experience of physical creation, so that you're always getting guidance or directions as to what to explore as this deep sea diver looking at whatever's down on the surface of the water. So the deep sea diver doesn't come down and say, I'm going to look at what I want. The deep sea diver is looking at what he has been asked to come down and explore in conjunction with the part that doesn't go down into the bottom of the ocean. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that I understand. Also, it has to do with um, my also kind of tendentially or what kind of inspired me was the idea of the wave and the idea of the particle wave and how uh, it can be in many different places at once until you observe it. My understanding, I think, I forget which principle that is, um, but the uncertainty principle of like how, you know, it can be in many different places until you observe it and then it locks into a place. Right, so absolutely. therefore, that might play into this idea of like um, that we yeah. kind of exist in many different states of mind and then when we start to give language to it or start to explore it, we're then you know, creating that experience as, as we understand it. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. That's where the bilocation comes in. That's where people go and have these other out of dimensional experiences, Mm. depending on how their, their, uh, awareness is focused. Mm. But now the beautiful part about it is, is, and, and I like what Carolyn May said. She says, the universe is very impersonal, but yet it's very personal. It sounds like a paradox, but if you think about it, If your higher self has created this experience with you and for you, and it's interconnected with all of creation, the world you look at looks impersonal. But yet when you talk to your higher self, it can then communicate with the entire universe and get information from you that you think you've been divinely inspired. And you are. And it works, and it's it's kind of simple to understand. Mm. You know, and it's quite phenomenal. I think our big problem is is we don't have a paradigm that really affects who and what, or explains who and what we really are. And we keep running on these old paradigms, and we keep getting these experiences and technology forcing us to say the world doesn't work the way we think it does. Yeah, the divorce I mean, of... The- the- yeah, go ahead. Just look at us talking on this phone. Mm. You know, we're separated from by what two hundred miles, three hundred. Yeah, it's a four-hour drive, whatever it takes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what I was also thinking about is the um, what that makes inspires me is the idea of the the kind of separation of mind and body, separation of math and his environment, kind of that divorce between. Uh, things that are very much integrated together, but rather we separate them, and in doing so, we kind of create this disassociative pattern in our society, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, mm. it's like our environment is extremely important to our thoughts. Mm. You two are right now in my environment. Yeah. So the thoughts I'm having exist because of you being in my life in this moment. Mm. So, what I'm talking to you about would not have come into my psyche if you weren't there. Mm. So also I wanted to bring up like the what what um what motivates us, what propels us forward. We we're talking about Jung and, and and the idea of like 
the collective, we seem to be going into like the collective unconscious and the, and the ideas of, um, kind of the, the underlying motivation between propelling us for that creator spirit of, uh, kind of the impetus that the impetus behind creative spirit. And, um, you know, we, I know in previous episodes or we had you on in a previous episode, we talked about child, childhood play being one factor of, um, the motivation behind, um, life's energy. Uh, and also sexual, creative sexuality has been the second most motivating factor. So if you comment a little bit on that and your understanding well, of that, yeah. what I've come to understand, well, first of all, around sex. Yeah. Sex. Okay. What is sex? Okay. Well, two people get together and they <laughs> create a child. My answer is, yeah, right. That's very biological. <laughs> Energetically, it's about creating life. Yeah. Rumi said, beware of your... Beware of, of, how did he say it? The people you hate, the people you love, because you create an offspring, you create a child in the unseen realm. Mm. Basically, sex is about creating life. So when two people engage in sex, and I don't care if they're um, homosexual or, or heterosexual or multisexual, I, I don't really care. What happens? The energy causes them to have certain experiences and that energy then pulls them into that relationship or into those experiences, and their life becomes different. It's an extremely powerful way to change life. Mm. Okay, so when it comes to sex, to me it's creative sexuality. How is the sexuality of the situation causing the creativity to occur? It's like I went to Tantra to see what they taught about sex and creativity, and then we'll talk about the creativity. Because what I have found is when people get infused by a, a profound creative energy in their body, it will excite all parts of their body, and the sex organs are part of the body, so they're going to feel a very strong sexual drive. But it's not about the sex and necessarily procreating a child. It's about that energy wanting to bring forth new experiences into life, into mm. manifestation. Mm. Okay, so... What's in the heart? Why are we here? Everybody is here for their own reason, and we find it as that passion in our heart, that which gives us life, that which makes us feel alive. Yeah. You know, huh? I was just going to say that the drive, you know, we understand in, in different, um, over the course of the past century, we understand the drive has been expanded from, you know, kind of, um, you know, in the Freudian perspective, there's, they talk about, you know, kind of childhood experiences and, and all this kind of thing, but we understand that it's driving much more connected to um, the psyche of the of the conscious unconscious of the whole. That we, I think, you also take the perspective that there is like a um, a deeper energy than just relatively speaking. Oh, you know, uh, tra like trauma has a lot to do with it, but um, you know, we 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 also have to do with the collective traumas, intergenerational traumas of okay, like, well, let yeah. Let me put this down. Okay. Yeah. First of all, I'll say two things. When you talk about childhood issues, I would recommend you listen to Gabor Matei. Yeah. Where he talks about the first five years of life, you don't have retrievable memories for how you denied your authentic self. Mm. And that gets carried over into response patterns to life that don't serve you. But the one I will throw out to you, again, I say we need a better paradigm. People want to talk about interconnectedness. They want to talk about the collective. They want to talk about the earth needing to be fixed. Well, if we're all interconnected, 
and the earth is heating up because humans are causing climate change, did they ever consider there is so much anger in the human collective that people aren't free to live true to themselves, that that anger has not been expressed, and it's causing the globe to heat up? Mm. I would offer that is the real solution to global warming, is deal with your anger inside of your heart, each and every one of you, and then the planet will be fine. Mm. Look at all the anger that is out there. I mean, I... I it's not being processed. Yeah, I do think that uh, we have to kind of look at our, examine our creative processes, our creator, our creator processes and uh, creative processes, um, you know, and kind of look, separating out the idea of like, you know, um, like looking externally for other people to solve the problems, but rather to look internally in our own process so that then we can participate in the creation of, um, of a, a healthy planet. Yeah. To the whole Honopono thing and taking yeah. responsibility. You can say, well, why is this in my life? And what do I have to do to address what I'm experiencing and knowing that as I get in touch with myself and why I incarnated, I can give that gift to somebody else. We can't give what we don't have. Mm. When we find that inner satisfaction, when we find that understanding of why I'm here, I can create the space for somebody else for them to understand why they're here. And when they're here doing what they came to do, they won't be angry. Mm. But if everybody's telling you how to live your life different than what you came to do, of course you're going to get angry. Yeah. I don't see anger as being like necessarily a bad thing or a judgmental right. thing. I see it as being like a process that sometimes can be misguided or can, can be self-destructive, but it can also be, you know, guided in a way that, you know, we have a lot of injustice and, and going on and it can be guided in a righteous way. A absolutely. But the issue is, why am I angry? Yeah. Okay, and what can I do about it? What can I, how do I change my life? Well, one thing I do, if somebody comes into me and says, Ken, I want you to work with me, the first thing I have to do is say, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to become? How do I need to think so this person finds what they're seeking? Yeah. I have to become different if I want to help the person. Because the mind that created that person in front of me is not the mind that's going to see that person different. Mm. I have to be willing to change for any person who comes into my life and say, hey, I want to work with the creativity stuff. Why? Because I know I'm interconnected with that person. That person came to me because something I can give him. What is it I have to give him or her because of their uniqueness? And I have to go inside and see how do I have to change to give them what they need for the reason they came into my life. I mean, you two were sitting there looking at each other. I, I guess you're in the same studio. Yeah. I would just ask each of you to look at each other and say, okay, how do I have to be, how do I need to change to give this other person what they came into my life for? Yeah, it's all a dance. I mean, it's all kind of give and take. It's all kind of receptivity yeah. to the other person, a kind of, um, yeah, kind of co coordination or kind of, uh, so we're not just rigid. We're not kind of, you know, too, um, yes, we're not kind of sitting there in a very rigid place where we're like, this is the way it is. Rather, we're kind of responding to the environment, responding to our, our partners. 
Creative partners. Yeah. yeah. Now, the sad part is when the other person that you're with doesn't have that mindset and you all of a sudden feel as though you're getting used and abused because they're, you're constantly trying to respond to them and they're just staying in their old paradigm, sucking the energy out of you. Yeah. And then there comes a point to say, you know what, this just isn't serving me. Yeah. And that's where the Honopono comes in really nicely. I'm sorry, forgive me, thank you for the experience, I love you, but you know what, I love myself, I'm out of here, and I'm going to create something that better serves me. Yeah, we can send them love from afar, but we don't necessarily have to be bogged down in external kind of relationships that, you know, it doesn't have to eat away at us either, you know? You know, you send love from afar, that's interesting. Yeah. There's a name, guy by the name of Larry Dorsey, and um, I just watched a video, an interview of him, and he talked about the power of prayer. And one of the comments was, well, is it better to have more people pray for you? And he says, no, it doesn't. He says, what's really important is you, you, whatever it is you do, you come from that heart space of deeply loving from within the heart. That is what makes the difference in the prayer. So you can love somebody from a great distance, but you you, you got to do it for the right reason. You don't do it because I have to love this person. He's a, he's a, um, I can't use that word on the air. I'm sorry. He's a uh, whatever. And um, think you're going to make a difference. You got to go into that heart and access that compassion and that love to understand this person is having difficulty in life. Yeah. And feel compassion for the situation they're in and how they may have been abused or had problems in their life, and they haven't figured out how to overcome yet. And mm. wish for them for something to step into their life to give them the comfort and the answers they need for their unique situation. Yeah, it seems like a power of trust that the people are inherently perfect, inherently whole, and that we understand the circumstances that... Um, the cause and conditions that produce these kinds of what we perceive as aberrant or abnormal behavior is actually makes sense in their situation and they're kind of walking in their own shoes and walking in their embodied experience that they have some situation that is prompting them organically to act or behave in, in these kind of right. ways which we may perceive as irrational or, or crazy right. or, or whatever it is, you know? You know, organically, that brings up yeah. another issue. Mm. The mind-body connection. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Everything that I have come to understand is all healing comes from within the individual. Mm. And it's a matter of whether or not we have learned to create health, which brings up an interesting question. Does a person who is having organic issues, is there things they can do within themselves with the right help and guidance that can heal them, whether it's a psychological issue or or something more physical. Mm. You know, we ought to all. Of, I, I I mean, uh, Anita Morjani is very interesting. She said that when she dealt with her cancer, when she went back into the Hindu culture, she was being empowered to heal herself. When she went into Western medicine, she was being disempowered because all the quote healing was with the physicians. But if the real healing comes from within, do we empower the people to heal themselves? Mm -hmm. Or do we take their power away? Yeah. I watched you know, a so few videos of Gabor Mate where he talks about um, kind of like stress and, and how if we take responsibility for the stressors 
and how we're all addicted to stress, how we're all kind of perpetuating the stressful environments. If we take responsibility for that, we can then find a way or find a, empower ourselves to say, we'll say no to stress and we'll kind of create an a, a avenue or pathway for all this kind of healing, for all sorts you know, of healing. Absolutely. Yeah. What, there's a recent one that he did, I don't know how, how long ago it was. He said he went on vacation with his wife. He said, we set the intention kind of to be there for each other and have a good vacation. And he said it was wonderful, but we had never did that before mm. because they never paid attention. They said, okay, let's just go on vacation, but they really didn't change the mindset that went with the vacation. Mm. So we do have this power of intention. We do have this power of focusing our mind to make a difference. And the question is, do we use it? Or do we kind of continually run along on an automatic kind of programming and response to life rather than saying, hey, I can change this? Hey, I will admit, when I drive, people annoy me very much. Mm. I, I don't consider them a lot of responsible drivers out there. So I obviously get annoyed. I won't say I get angry. I do call them certain choice words. <laughs> and the first thing I do is, I'm sorry, forgive me. I love you. Thank you for the experience of the modern world. Yeah. I choose to create something different. Yeah. All right? I don't deny that I get angry at at some of the, the, the stuff I see. I accept it and say, okay, it's my choice to get over it. Yeah. It also and reminds that, me of uh, transforming adverse conditions into the path because it's like, you know, a, a weight trainer would be like, oh, you know, I have to lift heavy weights in order to gain muscle. Similarly, we want we welcome adverse conditions because they – they provide the fodder for our for our kind of progress or our kind of revelation or our awakening or however you want to frame it, our healing, kind of our way in which we create in the world. Uh, so we we welcome adverse conditions because that's our that's our gym, if you will, to kind of. I, I will yeah. agree with you up to a point. Yeah, yeah. What but would you say? I, let me throw this out, and I offer this to you out of love. Yeah. When I was young, I I, do, I explicitly explicitly, very clearly remember where I was and what I was doing. I was in Corpus Christi, Texas, looking out the second story window of a barracks because I was down there as part of my summer training as a midshipman. And for some reason, I says, there's a saying, a man learns from it, a person learns from his experience, a wise person learns from the experience a fool never learns. And I said, I want to become wise. So I started to watch people. I started to look. I started to observe. I agree with you. We need certain adversity to help us become stronger. But in wisdom, we can look and say, I don't need to have that experience. I can choose another path. I can choose another way to develop my body and not sit there grunting and groaning. I love to do physical things in the yard and get my physicalness from what I do every day, such that I don't have to go to the gym. But we've changed our lifestyles so much that we don't even walk three blocks. We'll get a bus or get a taxi or we will drive. Mm. So to me, when one chooses to become wise from the perspective of learning from the experience of others, there's a lot of stuff we don't personally have to experience in life. Totally, totally. 
Yeah, I think it's also about changing arrows into flowers. You know, it's changing those kind of persecuting things and changing them to something like offering that we can then accept. So when other people, when we kind of observe and, and learn from the histories of, of mankind uh, or humanity, we can then say, oh, like um, all these things that were once perceived as like arrows, we're changing into offerings to us to learn so that we right. can then, you know, kind of have an offering to the world that we can then gain from. Yeah. You know, you just mentioned something else that's very dear to me because my work is in creativity. To create is to bring into existence something that has not existed before. Mm. Whenever we're faced with something that's truly creative, mind gets a little frightened, and it tries to get its handle on it and control it. When we have to learn to let go and allow the process to unfold and trust the power of our own intention and the power of the guiding higher self that's going to lead us through into that new creation. Mm. Because if we keep trying to do it the old way, we just keep repackaging the future in the form of the past. Mm. Well, as are my I listeners... Know the past. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I just want to remind listeners that this is the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're here with uh, co-host Scott Raven and myself, VJR Nathan. And we have special guest uh, Ken Furlick. His website, Releasing Your Unlimited Creativity, ryuc.info. Um, you can find online and, and all of his uh, musings and teachings about um, resting in awareness, creator, creator's way, uh, and creation, and how and how we can kind of integrate them together. So we're talking a little bit about uh, how we can. Uh, we were just you were just saying about how we can um, how we create based on the past. So we're kind of the mind only knows what has happened already, and how can we create a new mindset for a new future for like um, breaking free of those chains of the past? I think what you're saying, right? Yes, and that's where play comes in. Can mm. you play like a little child with ideas? Can you play at least in your own mind and not be biased by your own thinking? Can you can you come up with three options? Can you can you can you look at what you consider as negative as somehow positive? Can you can you kind of look on both sides of the duality? Um, when you start playing those mind games, at least the freedom in your own mind, you can find you become much much more flexible in the world. Yeah. So to me, the mind is where it all boils down to and starts, is how free are you in your own mind to play with ideas? Yeah, I seem like inviting in chaos in that, you know, like like the play is kind of a chaotic nature of like, and whereas order, doesn't everything, everything doesn't have to be so ordered. You know, we can kind of like play in chaos. And, I don't mean to interject, but you yeah. asked about creative sexuality. Yeah. For someone to have thoughts sexual thoughts and fantasies in some traditions they would consider that evil and you're being evil and influenced by the devil to have those thoughts well why can't you explore the possibility of sexual fantasies and look at all the variations and realize that you know what if the universe wanted me to have these fantasies materialize it's going to provide the opportunity but that doesn't mean I go and force myself on another, but I can still live in this world of imagination and look beyond the limitations. Mm. You know, I, I remember 
a lady that I knew, she had an experience of being able to spend all day in bed with somebody. And she said to me, she says, you know, it's kind of interesting. I remember sitting on a boat with my girlfriends wondering, what would it be like to spend all day in bed sexually? <laughs> yeah. And she had that unfold in her life maybe 20, 30 years later. <laughs> I think she talked as though was, she felt it as enjoyable. And the question is, those thoughts that we have in our mind and we play with them, do we manifest them? in the future. Yeah. Oh, and then the question comes in is, do we garden our thoughts? So, you know, if we want to have sexual fantasies, do we do it in a loving and imagine the partner being fully engaged and wanting to have the experience versus forcing ourselves in the same way, wanting to have money, imagining me generating a whole bunch of money at the expense of other people, or can I imagine generating a lot of money at the same time helping a lot of people? Yeah, what are the limits because, of our know, imagination? If we are yeah. powerful creators, what we start imagining in our mind becomes very important. So, so what would be some other forms of creative sexuality um, outside of uh, physical contact? advertisement yeah kind of the way in which they play with i mean i can't believe the way that sexuality is used in advertising mm -hmm. you know i i mean um look at the sex okay first of all one piece i don't think people understand is the male vehicle and the female vehicle has a creative tension inherent in the male-female relationship. From my perspective, there is not a person on the face of the earth you could not passionately love physically, and all that stands in your way is your own beliefs. And you sit back and say, wait a minute, you know, I'm not attracted to all these different men or women, depending on your sexual preference. But the question is, why not? You know, what is it that limits us from wanting to be with another person and give them the pleasures of their own body in the most magnificent way that one can do so? And why do you deny that and, and have it only for one or two individuals of your selection? Why can't you offer that to whomever comes along? And ultimately, I think it's about a choice. We choose to, you know, we're owning that, you know, and owning that choice, owning that choice, the decision, right? You, say? But, you know, then that brings up something very interesting. You have a fantasy of somebody who you would love to have certain kind of experiences with, and the universe provides that person to you. Mm. But they're of the wrong color. They're of the wrong religion. They're of the wrong height. Their body structure isn't quite what you find acceptable. And yet, they're the perfect person to give you the experience you long to have. And the question is, why wouldn't you see that person for who they are? Mm. Now, and then it gets into the biology of like, you know, whether or not the deeply seated, seated, deep seated um, kind of eons ago, perhaps, or beginningless kind of imprints we've had from experiences uh, from, from beginning. Let me time. give you a homework assignment. Yeah. From my understanding, the way you find your perfect mate is to smell them. 
and everything else <laughs> yeah. is somehow something the mind creates for what an acceptable mate is. Yeah. I mean, you, you laugh at dogs sniffing each other, but if that's the way you find your perfect mate, and you don't do that, and you cover your body with all kind of lotions and soaps and deodorants, how are you ever going to find the perfect physical mate that gives you the best genetic mix for the survival of the offspring? Mm. So once you get past that, it's all a mind game, believe it or not. Yeah. I may be wrong on that, but from what I got from the... Uh, information that I could relative to people who looked at this problem. Smell was apparently the best way to ensure the best mix of genes to ensure the survivability of the offspring. Yeah, wow. yeah. I think dating sites currently should have yeah, a smell feature or a, a smell check uh, added to them. Yeah, but, you know, unfortunately, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to not going to use their own. Right, right. Um, They'd manipulate it or, or see if they, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, you know, and unfortunately, that's where the technology is going. That what is truth? Yeah. And this is where intuition, I think, becomes extremely important in today's world. What is true for me, based upon what I'm feeling and perceiving within my whole being? Because we can't rely on truth externally anymore. Yeah. Also, we've been. You know, I'll ask both of you right now. Yeah. Okay. We're having this conversation. Does your body feel a little bit alive, and you feel a little bit of passion? You feel this is good. I, I really like this conversation. I find it really stimulating. Or, you know, or do you find sort of a shrinking and collapsing that I can't buy into this? This is forcing me to go where I don't want to go. What is your truth right now? Sure. Am I giving you what you feel is true, or am I giving what you feel is, for lack of a better word, excrement from a bull? <laughs> yeah, I do find that uh, when I go to these, uh, including this conversation, but when I go to these teachings, there's such a rush of uh, the chemicals in the brain, the feeling like, oh, this is this makes sense, this aligns, this, when you go to like these teachings of like, uh, meditation classes or these kinds of things. It's like there's such a, a rush of like, oh, you know, this all makes sense. And that's why people, I think, go is because they feel good about understanding the path and seeing the path and, and all this kind of thing. But then, you know, the hard work or the perceived hard work, the effort that we put in, the finding the joy in the in actual life to keep that momentum going, keep that energy going line, is, 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 bottom, is sometimes difficult. Yeah. That's an important thing. And the bottom line is, you know, something serves you when after the fact, remembering the experience is still expanding and satisfying. Mm. When you have a beautiful experience of life, if you call back that memory, it's still alive. Yeah. If you have something that was sort of fun, like you go to a movie, yeah, it's a night movie and you're all excited, and then you think about the movie three weeks later, you say, oh, that's okay, it was a good movie. Yeah. That's the difference in the excitement of the moment versus what is really lasting. Mm -hmm. The really lasting flavor, if you sit back and say, you know, that meditation I had with Guru Umpty Squat was really great. And then everything I did afterwards just wasn't there. Yeah. So was the experience of the individual important or was it the meditation? Yeah. You know, so my, my comment is, is that which survives that's what lasts that's what continues to give you an inner satisfaction in, in your own heart 
after the fact, whenever that memory is recalled, that's what serves you. Yeah, yeah. Also, I know you have to leave a little bit early, so I just want to tell you, um, give you a chance to talk about your train um, uh, shop. So this is where you're working right now, right? It's part of one of the projects you have. You can talk a bit about how that encourages creative play, and then we can let I'll be you. Be honest with you, okay? Yeah, I, I can go to twelve, so I mean, okay, good, we, good. Yeah, and if somebody comes, that's fine. They can wait. Yeah. Um, I was doing workshops, and almost everybody who came were women. Mm. It's like where are the men, and then I realized men like to play with toys. <laughs> and they actually they treat their women as toys and that's one <laughs> thing that annoys women um, trains was one of the few areas where I seen grown men play like little kids again Yeah. so when the opportunity came to buy the train store I thought you know what I can get the men to play I can get them back into that state of creativity that they had when they were ch- children and, and what's really interesting about the train store is there's a few younger people that are involved, but most of the people are older, and a lot of them are getting trains for their grandchildren, wanting to share those memories and that enjoyment with their grandchildren. And you can see where these trains that were a toy of their childhood is still calling them back into that playfulness in that world where they could imagine and be in that world unto themselves, mm. you know, and that's sort of why I bought the train store. And um, um, to me, it's about play. It's about a creative play. It's about being able to explore ideas. And my question is, what other ways are there to get people to play? Mm. Um, most people get into a competitive play, or they get into what they need to collect to look like they have a good collection or something but to me it's really about the play and how can that play be a creative force within their life so you know my writing's still there i still talk to people whenever they ask but my motivation for the store is to get people to play i mean i don't necessarily like retail (laughs) it's a pain where i can't say on on live tv on live air but um (laughs) You know, it's it's really about play. I mean, I used to oversee some of the most prestigious, premier, prestigious laboratories in the United States, and I couldn't get the people to play. Yeah. They were in their mindset, and they were fixed in their thinking. It's like, how do you get them out of this thinking? Yeah. Now, would you say there's a difference between group play and, and kind of solo play, and, and if there's a preference towards towards one or the other, of, of kind of playing, you know, create getting in that creative play with others, or... Or, it depends uh, on the intention and attitudes of the people involved. Mm-hmm. Group play has the problem of getting into a competitiveness, especially around men. Mm. But if they can remember to be like little children, and we're here to play solely for the experience of play, um, then the group can be very, very, very healing, mm. very much fun. The, the issue is the mind, especially in the male, it's the competitiveness of the mind. You know, even to be in conversation with another male and not compete sometimes can be very hard. Mm. I see it arise in me, and I, and I don't like that part of me. Yeah. Because I can be very competitive, you know. I can go for the juggler, and it's like, <laughs> no, no, I don't want to live in that world. Yeah. 
And instead of nurturing, nurturing the, the gifts of others, nurturing your own gifts and the kind of feminine energy of nurturing is important to kind of foster in men, not to feel like, you know, they always have to be one upping each other, but rather, and they all have to be masculine or exemplify yeah. masculinity. Yeah. That is itself you kind know, of toxicity. The movie Harvey came back into my life just recently because somebody asked me, he said, Oh, look at Harvey. And it prompted some conversations. And in it, he says, I could be smart or I could be pleasant. And I chose to be pleasant. That's Jimmy Stewart's line. Yeah. And the puka, the six foot rabbit in Harvey was drawn to him because that he wanted to be, live a pleasant life. But then all of his relatives thought he was crazy because he wasn't out there doing the typical masculine thing. Yeah. And I, I think that's what I'm finding. The older I get, the more I'd rather withdraw and be in the pleasantness and be there for people than having to go out and fight the world and compete with it. Thank you. Thank you. As a mind listeners, that this is Radio for Brooklyn. Uh, Radio for Brooklyn is a place to play. Radio for Brooklyn is a place for a free and open platform to our community. Brought me to literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us to stay on air. There's economics here, too, and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax-deductible. Please support the monthly pledge or one-time donation at readyforlooking.org slash donate. If you're working with Amazon, please you donate in a way that will cost you nothing. Go to readyforlooking.org slash Amazon and register Ready for Brooklyn as your Amazon small charity. Every time you shop, portion of your purchases benefits Ready for Brooklyn. Uh, if you're listening in front of your computer, please fill yourself up by downloading the apps for iPhone or Android, another way to access all the different shows that are on Ready for Brooklyn. And you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter at readyforlooking.org slash newsletter. So you're listening to Radio Brooklyn Independence Listener Support Radio, Truth to Power Show. Uh, we're about to end up, so we're about to end with uh, about two more minutes. So any final thoughts, man, everyone? Yes, VJ. Why didn't you tell me to shut up because you had announcements to do? I would not take offense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just organically flow that in there. <laughs> you, you rushed through it so fast. I hope people heard what you said. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, thank I you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much Thank for being you. here. Thank you, Guy. Thank Take you. Care, guy. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks so much to our listeners uh, for being here with us today. And uh, we'll see you again every Sunday at 11 a.m. Listen to our archives. Go to reefing.org slash truth to power to find our archives of the past. Almost, We're almost hitting 200. Nice. So almost 200 episodes. And uh Find all of our episodes binge listened over the holidays. Let's have a celebration. On, yes, uh, thank 200. you. Uh, VJ, you uh, w- you got some other announcements coming up too? Something that yeah, you- we we have a we'll, we'll announce it now. It's like ten more seconds, but I have a new book coming out, uh, Breakdown Dancer, which people can look up uh, look up online on my website vjrnathan.com or postsequeens.org and find out more announcements there. Sounds good. Thank all you. right, thank you so much.